Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, we talk with presidential historian Douglas Brinkley on the publication week of his new book, Silent Spring Revolution. He documents the impact that Rachel Carson's 1962 seminal work, Silent Spring, had on the conservation movement in the United States and how it helped influence Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon to enact landmark environmental legislation and preserve millions of acres of wilderness and coastal areas for the public. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Douglas Brinkley, we're talking to you on the publication day of your latest book, Silent Spring Revolution. What's the story the book tells? Well, you know, I wrote a book called uh, The Wilderness Warrior about Theodore Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot, John Muir, the progressive era conservation movement. Uh, That's when Theodore Roosevelt saved about 234 million acres of wild America, promoting national parks far and wide establishing the Grand Canyon and Muir Woods and many others. That was the first conservation movement. The second was Franklin D. Roosevelt in the Civilian Conservation Corps between 1933 and 1942. And they planted about two to three billion trees, uh, uh, three billion total if you add all the New Deal entities up, um, to to help us fight the, um, and you know, soil erosion, to... Um, you know, uh, save uh, bird flyaways, to restock lakes and ponds. Uh, Our country was in bad shape in the 1930s. And now this book, Silent Spring Revolution, is the third wave. And that was what we we tend to call the environmental movement of the 1960s and 70s. And unlike um, the first two, where you had a president as the real leader of the movement, it turns out that in this third wave, it's Rachel Carson, a writer of Silent Spring, which came out in 1962, that really spurred on uh, grassroots wilderness advocates, um, the New Frontiers people around Jack Kennedy, public scientists. And it was based on um, not just saving of national parks and and national seashores, but uh, warning people of contaminants in the air and water, uh, that we didn't have proper sewage treatment, that DDT was uh, poisoning people, that um, the American Eagle, a symbol of our country, was dying in mass, um, on and on. And it, it led to such things as the birth of the Environmental Protection Agency, the, the Clean Air Act of 1970, Endangered Species Act of 73, and much more. That whole Earth Day generation, um, which exploded in the 1960s. And now we don't really use the word conservation anymore. It's all about environment. So I've documented in my new book, not just Rachel Carson, who she was, about all of her amazing writings, but about three U.S. presidents and how they catapulted the idea of environmental protection to the forefront of their agendas. You explain in the introduction that this trilogy, and you've written many books, but this trilogy is really the cornerstone of your work as a historian. Explain why. You know, Susan, when I was, I think, you know, when I was young, my mom and dad, they were teachers. We had a 24-foot coachman trailer, Pontiac pulling it. And I went all over the United States and got to see the great national parks. I was in the Great Smokies and Yellowstone and Yosemite and the Everglades and the like. And it had a profound influence on me. And hence, 
when I started writing the first of the trilogy, Theodore Roosevelt, I realized this is kind of my soul in the sense that I grew up traveling and wandering America, visiting these incredible parks. And now I have an opportunity to go visit the parks, like in my book that we're talking about, Silent Spring Revolution, to go to Canyonlands in Utah, which was created in 1964 by Lyndon Johnson and Stuart Udall, or to go to um, you know the North Cascades in Washington State, which is just magnificent, created in 1968. So for each one of these uh, books I've written, I've gotten to go visit archives at national parks, travel the country. I feel at this point, for example, we have 550 national wildlife refuges, and I've gotten to visit many of them, and I'm continuing to visit others. So what a thrill to be able to be an academic professor Keeping my real bread and butter, my passion, presidents, as you know, I'm a presidential historian, but to combine that with uh, the American public lands and how, you know, our seashores and lakeshores, just in the whole, this land is your land, of the Woody Guthrie song mode, it's been just fantastic. And so I feel as a professional person, these books are going to live on. Uh, I've made, they're long. I've done it in a way that will be in libraries forever that when I'm long dead, people can go and, and understand what transpired in the 20th century and our ability to make sure we protected places ranging, you know, from the Brooks Range in Alaska, you know, to, um, you know, the um, deserts of Arizona to um, all sorts of um, places, seashores that I write about, like Cape Cod in Massachusetts and Assateague in uh, Maryland and Virginia, Cumberland Island, Georgia, Apostle Islands, Wisconsin, Sleeping Bear Dunes, Michigan. I write about these in the in the book, and I don't think people realize that there was that big a movement, a Theodore Roosevelt-like movement to protect places and historic sites in the 1960s and early 70s. Well, let's uh, set the stage for the period that you that you write about in this book. So, explain what was happening in post World War II America, the su- suburbanization, the industrialization. And, and how soon it became evident that there were going to be environmental impacts of all this? That's a great question. I mean, when, you know, I write about uh, Rachel Carson being born in Springdale, Pennsylvania, uh, along the banks of the Allegheny River, a beautiful river, and it was dirty. It was polluted. It was industrial muck. You couldn't breathe. The Allegheny was ruined. Uh, she went and found, you know, fossils. She would uh, write about nature along the Allegheny. Um, But it was just synonymous with all of our dead rivers. Uh, In the United States, we've treated rivers badly. Um, And by the let's just say by the time of the Great Depression, these rivers were our sewer lines, our our dumping spots. You know, we didn't have the sewage treatment plants like we have today. So everything was just going into our rivers and lakes and they were dying. I write in the book in particular about the Potomac River dying and, a per, and the, how uh, Lake Erie was dying and other bodies of water. And so, you know, this becomes a, a um, it, 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 things got exponentially worse when World War II happened. You know, I used to be director of the Eisenhower Center. I've written on World War II a lot. But one bad side effect of World War II is we went, through the war to win the war, and rightfully so. We did every kind of chemistry, technology, fertilizer, medical sprays, you name it, agricultural product, uh, um, you know, um, um, chemicals. 
and it wasn't regulated. It was anything to win the war. Well, our chickens came home to roost after World War II. And as I write, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we started blowing up in the spirit of the Cold War um, nuclear detonations willy-nilly in the Nevada desert. Uh, scientists said, oh, a little radi radioactive fallout won't hurt you. Uh, in fact, in Las Vegas after World War II, people would you know, go to buy souvenirs of you know, um, the uh, atomic Nevada. And it's only into the, as the 1950s move on that people and scientists that I write about start saying, wow, the, the spike in the rates of leukemia and cancers, and there became a anti-nuclear testing movement of the 1950s that met with the anti-DDT movement because new research came out. DDT was sprayed from planes. And in World War II, it was a, a savior to soldiers in the Pacific. You'd get doused in it, but you wouldn't get bitten by mosquitoes or, you know, or have lice, et cetera. And, um, but it started being seen that it was killing fish, birds, and had a terrible effect on human beings. And that movement, the anti-nuclear, anti-DDT movement merged with what I call the wilderness lobby, which is a little more Theodore Roosevelt style. Let's save a big, vast national uh, forest. Let's create roadless wilderness places like the Bob Marshall up in Montana, where you can go and hunt and fish, but without having uh, roads or dams or um, utilities um, in your scenic view. Um, so all of those start meeting together in the 50s. And when Dwight Eisenhower left the presidency, one of the last things he did was save Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. And he also demilitarized Antarctica. So this was bipartisan. But uh, th this was late 50s. Rachel Carson's book hadn't come out. She was writing in the 40s and 50s after she left Pennsylvania. She went to Woods Hole in Massachusetts, the top, um, you know, oceanographic center in the country. She got interested in unusual things like the migratory routes of um, uh, eels on their journey and the like. Uh, she did a master's in zoology at Johns Hopkins. During World War II, she wrote, you know, columns for the Baltimore Sun about the shad stocks of America or, or what's going on in the oceans. And then in 1946, she began writing a thing called Conservation in Action, which was the saving of these booklets to protect uh, each, you know, national wildlife refuge. And, and that was a big deal. But she started through Fish and Wildlife getting scientific data of how bad DDT was. And another man, Barry Commoner, was getting the data on how bad, um, you know, it was for nuclear fallout. And all of these are, are married when John F. Kennedy runs for president and wins. Um, and it's the beginning, really, of the of the environmental movement with Kennedy in the White House, largely because his belief in science First and foremost, he's a great science president, Kennedy. And the fact that he had Stuart Udall at Interior, if you go to Washington today, the Interior Department buildings named after Stuart Udall, who served both Kennedy and Johnson. And Udall was quite open-minded to ideas of racial integration in our park service, but he was also very interested in um, you know, making sure that the uh, connecting environmental quality and public health to the conservation movement. I want to add one other 
uh, environmental hazard of the air. You talked about the chemicals, DDT and the like, being sprayed. Really, we, the video that we have of little kids following behind DDT trucks in neighborhoods, you know, in their summer attire with the spray going all over the place, looks shocking to our eyes in, in 2022, uh, but very common in the periods. That, the nuclear testing and the fallout. The third w- aspect that you write about was the impact of the automobile and the, the federal highway system being built and, and leaded gasoline in cars and what it did to the, the air. Can you talk about that? Oh, well, smog, smog, smog. It's a word we all know, but it really emanated out of Denora, Pennsylvania um, in 1948. The entire town, and this isn't far from where Rachel Carson grew up, the entire town, the air got inverted in the valley and hung low because of the, um, the mills in the Pittsburgh area, and the whole town got sick. You can make a Stephen King horror movie on it. People dying left and right, the whole town with respiratory illness. And the New Yorker magazine ran a series about it. It made a lot of news. There was also a big killer smog in London. New York City had a horrendous one in 1953. Um, So there became a movement for federal clean air. I mean, the problem with air, if you're a state's rights person, it doesn't do any good for Pennsylvania to have a different law than New Jersey because it's gonna the soot's gonna blow to the the neighboring state. So by nature, air demands federal law, and yet we were slow at doing it. It was uh, there was still a lot of people that let each state decide their air quality, but things got too bad to do that. I mean, in Los Angeles, say 1960, you couldn't even breathe. The, the smog was so thick. And grassroots organizations in places like Pasadena and Hollywood started protesting. Um, many women against smog, uh, the smogateers, as they were called in California. New York City had Citizens for Clean Air Alliances. It really became very grassroots, which led to the first Clean Air Act of 1963. But the problem was the first Clean Air Act only dealt with stationary admissions. So it was only trying to say, can we monitor a smokestack factory and what the emissions that we were still and automobiles had leaded gasoline, and it was a problem. It was making people sick. And you start getting in the 60s a demand to change our automobile habits, including Ralph Nader writing Unsafe at Any Speed in 1965, which is remembered for kind of promoting safety in cars and going after auto companies on safety issues. But it also was an environmental manifesto at heart, talking about how automobiles are making people sick. And the uh, And as for the interstate highway, uh, Eisenhower's big accomplishment, the biggest public works project in world history, uh, they built that without a lot of urban planning. So they would go roll in Interstate 10 and destroy Storyville in New Orleans or cut in through downtown historic San Antonio and ruin its historic and cultural features. The Cross Island Expressway through Bronx was devastated neighborhoods. So there also became some thinking about uh, um, interstates, or at least how do we have a historic movement to preserve uh, urban areas and, and, and name more buildings, more communities, national historic sites. Lady Bird Johnson becomes famous for this, 
not just people remember she didn't want billboards on some roads, but she became big on making sure that we declared his, historic districts all through the United States so we don't lose our charm, that we just don't become a interstate highway fast food nation. All these things are coming together, but all I can tell listeners, um, the smog problem was real and bad and big time. And the good news is we've done a lot better. Los Angeles and New York today, you can breathe. But in the period I'm writing about, the 50s, 60s, it was, our air quality in America was terrible before this uh, spout of federal legislation came to fruition. I want to learn a little bit more about Rachel Carson. But before we do, you mentioned Stuart Udall, and he appears throughout your book, Silent Spring Revolution. Another character who appears throughout the text is someone that people might only know from his one role in society, and that is as a Supreme Court Justice, William O. Douglas. What was his role in the environmental uh, movement? I I discovered that William O. Douglas is really the linchpin to the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s. Uh, Rachel Carson is the one who deserves the most credit, so to speak, because she really was a a one-woman revolution who changed the way our thinking, making people think about it. You know, Rachel Carson taught people for um, your your child may be getting sick playing in their backyard due to pesticides, chemicals. Uh, she questioned, um, you know, this was an era where people we had, um, you know, Cesar Chavez out in in Dolores Huerta, um, out in the you know San Joaquin Valley and Cachia and the like. Uh, the out in California, Imperial Valley, people were just getting sick from these pesticides. Mexican Americans um, being uh, children being deformed, uh, cancer rates sky high. This whole idea of environmental justice is being born. But Douglas grew up in Yakima, Washington, and he couldn't walk when he was young. He got a crippling polio-like condition. Uh, doctors thought he wouldn't walk. Well, he started walking and walking and walking and strengthened his legs. And he became one of our country's most intrepid mountain climbers. In fact, in 1951, as Supreme Court justice, he went to the Himalayas and wrote a book about it, about his hiking, uh, the mountains there. But in the U.S., he would kind of uh, take peaks, if you like, uh, bag them, um, you know, places like Mount Adams and, and um, you know, Mount Baker in the Pacific Northwest. He he became the big central, a big lover of Central Oregon, and today that whole Bend, Oregon outdoor recreation culture has Bill Douglas's fingerprints, you know, or footprints, I should say, everywhere you go around there. But he he went to Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, a really fine small school out there, and then traveled like a hobo, Woody Guthrie style, to New York City became a leading light at Columbia University, went on, you know, with his law degree to become professor at Sterling Professor of Law at Columbia. And then he got hired by Joe Kennedy to at the during the Great Depression uh, for the Security Exchange Commission on Wall Street on uh, dealing with bankruptcies that were being declared, a lot of fraudulent bankruptcies to try to get money. So he was busting people, Douglas. Throughout this all, he became a fly fisherman extraordinaire, a wilderness devotee. His heroes were John Muir, co-founder of the Sierra Club, um, and you know particularly Henry David Thoreau, uh, who wrote Walden. And he recognized this is a pre-environmental protection agency era after World War II. 
Douglas got deeply alarmed by statistics he was reading about what automobiles were doing to open spaces, about how um, surplus jeeps from World War II were destroying delicate desert habitats, how species that he cared about, whether it's the Florida panther or uh, um, grizzly bears of the Pacific Northwest, were being overhunted and, and, and poached and decimated. And so he became a one-man Sousaban promoting conservation. And his first big gambit was hiking 186 miles from Georgetown to Cumberland, Maryland, to save the CNO Canal. And he challenged editors from the Washington Post who were promoting a road, a thoroughfare, along where today's canal is. And Douglas said, we're going to save the historic and cultural, aesthetic and natural assets along the CNO Canal. And this hike was big, 186 miles, a pretty good jaunt. And it, it brought journalists covering him. And uh, lo and behold, he won his fight. Uh, the CNO Canal got saved. If you go to the entrance of it at Georgetown, you'll see a bust of Douglas. Well, this only spurred him on. And he started going all over the country. And just like you think of Martin Luther King holding protest, William O. Douglas would do hike protest. He'd hike along the Olympic coast of Washington to say, no highway. We're going to keep some pristine uh, um, beach land um, in, with, without roads. He went to uh, Arkansas and canoed down the Buffalo River, demanding no dams, that we're going to keep it as a wild and scenic river, the Buffalo, which it is. It's our great national river today. He went to Kentucky and said, leave the Red River Gorge alone. It belongs for the people as a forest and as a parkland. Uh, he went to the Allagash in Maine um, and, and saved that watershed from ruin. Uh, I could go on and on. There's so many Douglas events. And the point is, it, it worked. Each one of these protests, he stopped modernity and his big, thing he ended up loathing was dams. Now, dams were popular with FDR. The Grand Coulee Dam electrified Puget Sound and the Tennessee Valley Authority brought electrification to the South. And Lyndon Johnson uh, earned his spurs as a um, young congressman and senator on getting bringing dams to his districts. But um, th we built too many of them. It just became pork. And Douglas recognized we're killing the salmon runs. We're destroying the Colorado River, one of the most beautiful scenic rivers in the world. And it, it is ruined today. Uh, Douglas couldn't save the Colorado, unfortunately. So this over damming came in. And the, the showdown spot that really got things rolling was at a place called Dinosaur National Monument, Colorado, Utah where a dam was going to be built that by damming the Colorado there, it would have inundated and changed the topography of a national monument, which was not legal. So there became a fight in all of these groups. This is where the Sierra Club of the modern era was born because David Brower, the executive um, um, director, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, Howard Zahnizer of the Wilderness Society and others, said no they took out full page ads you're not going to ruin dinosaur if you let that happen none of the national parks are safe and they won the conservation team won the dam didn't ruin the dinosaur and that only encouraged let's just call it the douglas cabal even more so bill douglas um, 
even though he was appointed by FDR, loved John F. Kennedy, trained Bobby Kennedy how to hike, fish. He took Robert F. Kennedy, the you know attorney general for John F. Kennedy. He took him all over hiking. In fact, they went to Siberia together, um, uh, marching around. So uh, Douglas had big influence on what we might call a conservation lobby. And his Supreme Court office became a clearing station, unworried about conflict of interest. I laugh whenever I have to listen to media about Clarence Thomas's wife, because uh, I know what Bill Douglas did in the Supreme Court. But he used his desk as a clearinghouse for every green nonprofit. You could send them your your info, info and he'd find a way to get Eric Severian on CBS to do a story on it, or he'd find a way for uh, um, John Oakes at the New York Times to do an op-ed on it. Douglas was lobbying nonstop with the idea of preserving what he thought was America the Beautiful, a country that a birthright, he called it a wilderness birthright, that it should be in the Bill of Rights, that every American has a right to clean rivers, clean lakes, and clean, um, clean air, and that you had to have some space where um, you could have solitude in the modern world, that you could not do testing, you know, or, or have airplanes flying over too many residential areas um, disrupting school kids or, or just the, the need for solitude in a, a hyper-industrial world. So Douglas backed Rachel Carson. She was writing books in the 50s about the oceans, a genius trilogy about ocean conservation douglas not only backed those books but he he early on seized on silent spring as being a gavel or a tool to wake people up to the environmental hazards that were in their backyard so let's move on to the presidents uh, starting with john f kennedy i have a video clip of him from 1962 and i just want to use that to get him on the record talking about environmental stuff uh let's play it it's about just 25 seconds long there appears to be growing concern among scientists as to the possibility of dangerous long-range side effects from the widespread use of DDT and other pesticides. Have you considered asking the Department of Agriculture or the Public Health Service to take a closer look at this? Yes, I, 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 and I know that they uh, already are. I think particularly, of course, uh, since Ms. Carson's book, but uh, they are examining the matter. So, Doug Brinkley, we have uh, about 30 minutes left in our conversation, about 10 minutes for each of these momentous presidents. But let me ask you about uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, you say that two weeks after taking off, he launched his new conservation agenda. He had about a thousand days in office. What was he able to accomplish? Well, I want to talk about that clip in a second. But let me tell you his big thing due to William O. Douglas promoting it. And he loved a book by um, Thoreau called Cape Cod. We always think about Walden, but Thoreau wrote a book about Cape Cod, which I recommend to uh, people. And he was looking for an issue on conservation, as any politician would be when he was a senator, and he seized on seashore preservation because everybody was building condos and, you know, we're seeing Florida just built up along the coastline and uh, a board or a boardwalk culture, Jerseyization. Um, seawalls and the like, and he wanted some pristine beaches. And so he, he focused on Cape Cod National Seashore issue, and he fought for it, and he got it done as president first year. Um, and that's remarkable. If you ever go to Cape Cod, we owe John F. Kennedy for its beauty. He fought for it uh, along with others, but he was the leader. 
And so what was neat about Cape Cod is that towns like Wellfleet and Turo and Provincetown are there, but the park goes all around it and the great dunes got saved and the bird life got saved and the federal government worked with Audubon Society to, to make sure that that whole area had um, wasn't ruined from a natural and cultural point of view. And then Kennedy kept hammering away at that. He say Padre Island in Texas. You think that's an easy one. Coastal real estate is hard to save as parklands. Lyndon Johnson wanted it developed to, to be Myrtle Beach, Padre Island. And Kennedy with Senator Ralph Yarborough and these new frontier conservationists said, no, we're going to save a big part of Texas's Gulf, and today it's Padre Island National Seashore, the major place for sea turtles to hatch and to really go and experience Gulf uh, uh, ecosystem with um, without um, too much human interference. And then he did Point Reyes, California. That's Marin County, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Some of the most expensive real estate in the planet has been put aside for the natural world for our children or children's children to enjoy. So I'm just right off the bat giving you three of the big Kennedy National Seashores. But then he put into work a whole idea of saving others. So but the Kennedy-Johnson effect on, on seashores, places like Fire Island, New York, get saved by Lyndon Johnson. But it was Kennedy's impetus. Um, or the, um, as I mentioned earlier, the beautiful Apostle Islands in Wisconsin, if you haven't been, go. It's just so remarkable. But the other thing that Kennedy did is he started honing in on um, that Rachel Carson book, and he put a presidential science committee together. And the big thing was, is Carson telling the truth? And here, here was the nut of the problem beyond people getting cancer and sick, which is big enough. A woman named Marjorie Spock sued because she was an organic farmer from Long Island. And um, at at the um, you know at the her farm they were spraying um, spraying over the croplands, and it she was saying I I can't have pesticides of DDT I'm an organic farmer you're poisoning my my life, and she went to the Supreme Court and lost. But if, if but if the springs were being done by the Department of Agriculture, Suffolk County on Long Island, New York State. But the issue was when it went to the Supreme Court, can she have a right to say I'm an organic farmer? And who has the right to go over somebody's land and spray chemicals? She loses, but William O. Douglas wrote a killer dissent about it. And as I mentioned, the Kennedys were very close to Bill Douglas. And when Kennedy said that clip at the press conference there, he did put the best presidential science commission together who said Rachel Carson's work is correct. The science is right. It is going to make wildlife and fish stocks ill and has the potential to really harm humans. And there became an effort to ban DDT. And it ate up an entire decade from Silent Spring in 62 to 1972 when William Ruckelshaus, the first head of the EPA, bans DDT in North America. It became at last a bipartisan issue. But Kennedy had the nerve to back Rachel Carson. And it's a little bit like, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Uncle Tom's Cabin or Theodore Roosevelt with his book, The Jungle, 
about the meatpacking industries. It was a book that influenced a president. And um, there, there's, you know, we also know Kennedy had read Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So here's another example of Kennedy, the reading president um, and the science president doing the right thing on behalf of the American people. And in doing such, launched an environmental movement. And I must add, once Kennedy shot in Dallas, the leading political figures that are marketing themselves as an environmental watchdog after Kennedy were New Frontiers people. It was Frank Church, the Idaho senator. It was Clinton Anderson, senator from New Mexico. It was Ed Muskie, senator of Maine. And uh, in the Republican Party, the leader was John Salyer, who um, was on all the important committees of land preservation and um, and fought for the natural world harder than anybody. He really was the top. John Dingell of Michigan and John Salyer in Congress were the top people. And then also Scoop Jackson out in uh, in in who has a long uh, uh, and noble record in environmental protection. Uh, he entered the fray too. So, but it was the Kennedy effect that brought all these people together. And I should add. Bill Douglas wrote two books in this period, one called both called My Wilderness, one about saving certain places in the West, others about the East. And, um, it, it, and then at the same time, David Brower, the Sierra Club, was marketeering the great photographer in the Kennedy years, Ansel Adams, um, and also then Philip Hyde, Elliot Porter. But these photographs went all over showing what we could save meaning here's a beautiful landscape, you know, photograph of the Guadalupe Mountains of Texas. And here next to it's a photograph of a mountain range that's been destroyed. Which would you prefer? And uh, it, and then people like Walt Disney was doing documentaries of true life adventures, treating coyotes and wolves and the like as um, charismatic species, not just predators that uh, should be slaughtered because ranchers didn't like them. So this all starts being galvanized during the Kennedy years. And the the leading light during John F. Kennedy's president on nature uh, was Robert Frost, the great poet who read at Kennedy's inaugural and Frost's poetry about rural Vermont and living within nature had a profound effect on John F. Kennedy. And he, he was Frost's biggest reader and lover and you know, Kennedy made his whole campaign on Frost with promises kept. And Rose Kennedy loved Henry David Thoreau so much, meaning the president's mom, that she went to Russia in the Cold War to do a secret CIA-style uh, mission to make sure Henry David Thoreau's books were being carried in Russian libraries. So let's pick up with, <clears throat> excuse me, LBJ, uh, when he takes over the office in November of 1963. Everyone probably associates the Great Society program with LBJ, but you write that he adopted the new conservation program as a, a natural adjunct to it. You write of LBJ that he gave conservation a higher priority than any president since Theodore Roosevelt. What did he do? You know, we'll talk about an underplayed story in our nation's history, Lyndon Johnson and conservation. Well, the first thing he did in this realm was marry Lady Bird. Um, and she grew up in uh, East Texas, uh, around the Big Thicket area, uh, Louisiana border, and became in love with the flora and fauna 
of uh, that incredible uh, um, Cato Lake region. Gorgeous there. And um, Don Henley of the Eagles, the band, is working hard to preserve that area right now. Uh, she came from there. And so she really could identify wildflowers. Uh, today, we know her in where I live, Austin. She saved our local park, Zilker, and built trailways. And we have the Lady Bird uh, Johnson National Wildlife uh, Center at University of Texas. Um, so he, his wife loved this. And then he kept Stuart Udall, Kennedy's interior secretary. And then Johnson said, let's go for it. You know, he was a rancher. And one of the things I write in the book is really good ranchers in the American West are some of the best land stewards there are. Um, we sometimes think of cowboys as being uh, simply, you know, slaughterhouses or or uh, shooting off guns. But many of them are do beautiful job of land repairing and fixing and running their and, and proper stewardship. And Linden was one of them. His ranch in the Texas Hill Country along the Pedernales River um, was in his blood. And so he got really big on finishing Kennedy's Wilderness Act. And Johnson signs it in 1964. This, Susan, is a big deal. It puts 9.1 million acres in America, the Wilderness Act, that says no roads are allowed to be built. It's going to just be saved as habitat. And humans have to hike in or hike out. But they cannot, no motorcycles, no no dune buggies, no uh, lumber trucks, uh, no porta potties it's just wilderness and that's grown today and i give lyndon full credit for that um he did he pushed it through when others uh perhaps wouldn't have um johnson then after on that success starts adopting the idea of why do we need all these dams all the time and while he wanted some dams he also promoted what we call wild and scenic river movement taking big parts of of gorgeous rivers i mean oregon today has so many in alaska but uh, rivers that are going to be able to stay in a more pristine condition and not be mauled or polluted those are both lindens wilderness act wild and scenic rivers but more than that uh, lady bird as i mentioned with her beautification campaign she would go with udall to places like big bend national park and go down the rio grande river on a raft trip and promote outdoor recreation. Both Johnsons, Lyndon and Lady Bird, fought tooth and nail to save the great Redwood Kingdom of California, uh, eventually getting us Redwood National Park. Um, the North Cascades, which my probably now my favorite area in the country in Washington State from an, a, a wilderness perspective, um, they saved all of that. It's spectacular there. And, you know, books I've written about Jack Kerouac wrote a book, The Dharma Bums, about the North Cascades. And, you know, um, it became a rucksack revolution of young people wanting to hike and camp. And Johnson folded into all of that. In addition to signing environmental uh, laws for environmental quality, one after the other, if you go to the Johnson Library in Austin, which I recommend everybody go visit that library, you see, Susan, as you know, walls of signing pens of Lyndon Johnson. Well, many of these were uh, things that we don't talk about a lot, but that's about uh, uh, getting uh, uh, regulating um, industry and making sure that our countrysides are safe. And that uh, uh, even uh, Johnson even promoted parks near cities um, in, in ways that we could make sure outdoor recreation wasn't just for elites. 
uh, or, or people like myself that were able to go to a trailer to, to Yosemite, uh, that there would be green uh, lands in, in national recreation areas right in big cities' backyards. So Lyndon Johnson was just phenomenal. And act by act, um, you know, what he did for also for my profession and for what Brian Lamb and, and you, Susan, do for a living, looking at um, our history of our country, um, the ability to save homes of former presidents. I, w- I was writing the book how touching the great poet Carl Sandburg was adopted by Lyndon and Lady Bird. And before Sandburg dies, the National Park Service has brought his home to save Carl Sandburg's home in North Carolina. Uh, you know, efforts in, in, in working the talent that LBJ had working with him. They brought in Wallace Stegner, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, uh, one of the great writers in American history is working in government for the great society. Lyndon Johnson brought John Steinbeck in, um, who knew so much about the natural world. Uh, He worked with Ed Ricketts and all in Monterey Bay and wrote about the topography of California. And now he's doing some writing for Lyndon Johnson's inaugural. So um, Johnson did more than people realized. The problem was the Vietnam War hung over him. And he made a mistake of keeping to the term conservation in his great society speech in Ann Arbor and beyond. And so it became the new conservation. If it was called the new environmentalism, he'd be thought of in a better light today, but he clung to the now fairly antiquated word conservation. And environmentalism, as we know it today, doesn't really catch on till around 68, 69. And at that point, uh, Johnson is leaving. And one of the last things I'll say before he left office, he also did our national trail system. Lyndon Johnson saved the Appalachian Trail, Pacific uh, Crest Trail, all this trail system that we have in the country, whether it's for the Oregon Trail or the Nez Pierce, it, it, it's LBJ. And so I write about both. And if you add Lyndon and Lady Bird together, it's only really Theodore Roosevelt that uh, exceeds their conservation legacy. FDR was awful good, too. Before we leave Lyndon Johnson, we do have a clip. This is an audio clip about 50 seconds long from his Great Society speech at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, May 22nd, 1964. We have always prided ourselves on being not only America the strong and America the free, but America the beautiful. Today, that beauty is in danger. The water we drink, the food we eat, the very air that we breathe are threatened with pollution. Our parks are overcrowded, our seashores overburdened. Green fields and dense forests are disappearing. A few years ago, we were greatly concerned about the ugly American. Today, we must act to prevent an ugly America. That's LBJ in uh, 1964. We have just a little over 15 minutes, so let's move on to Richard Nixon, because his record is uh, an interesting one. You write that the press was baffled as to how Richard Nixon became a rough rider of environmental activism. What were you saying there? Well, you know, I always knew that, you know, Nixon, when he had to leave the White House, he quoted the 
Sorbonne speech at Theodore Roosevelt, the man in the arena. I always knew that Nixon admired Theodore Roosevelt mightily, probably with Winston Churchill, his great hero. Um, what I didn't realize is that he had a Theodore Roosevelt conservation streak in him, Nixon. And I say that because in California, to navigate politics in the 1960s, you had to be an environmentalist. But also a lot of Republicans in California, wealthy Republicans, uh, lived on the ocean. Beautiful homes, towns as you, you know, Carmel or Santa Barbara or Dana Point or Laguna Beach. And those Republicans wanted to make sure that it was a NIMBY movement of wealthy Republicans. Not in my backyard are you building an atomic plant. Not in my backyard are you building an interstate where I have to hear the motor traffic. Um, so Nixon was a, a keen to that constituency. And um, when he ran in 68 for president again, he didn't really have any idea of modern environmentalism. Uh, he didn't like the Sierra Club, for example, in California, because he saw them as a Democratic outfit. Um, so, But he did know a man named John Ehrlichman in Seattle. Uh, Nixon had gone all over the Seattle area in a boat with Ehrlichman. Ehrlichman, beyond having gone to UCLA and a, a, fam a, a, a you know, famous lawyer, um, he ended up being the top, really, land and water in lawyer in, in Seattle. And what Ehrlichman did was shut down an aluminum plant, for example. Um, Ehrlichman made his money in Seattle on, on basically what I would call NIMBY environmentalism, not in my backyard, communities not wanting industrial debris anywhere near their school that their kids are going to. And he won a lot of big cases and Nick, he went out boating and Nixon liked being on water. He lived obviously at most of his you know, presidency, his winter White House was San Clemente, and he'd go to Kibis Kane to see B.B. Rebozo a lot. So in 68, he had to suddenly have an environmental advisor, so he picked Ehrlichman. And Ehrlichman was so good at it, he became the domestic advisor for Nixon. And Ehrlichman is what I call in the book because that's what all of the people like William O. Douglas or David Brower and the like called him, a covert green. Uh, Ehrlichman really got the environmental movement. Uh, he was part of the Seattle people. And I write in the book that we often think of Berkeley or San Francisco as sort of a hotspot of environmentalism. I would say Seattle uh, and down to Portland uh, was the place that triggered things in the 60s and 70s. At any rate, Ehrlich, Nixon basically told Ehrlichman, I'll sign something. Uh, I'll sign, I want to be an environmental president, but I don't want anybody that I don't like getting credit. Mainly, he hated Ed Muskie, the senator from Maine. Nixon despises Muskie in a way I can't tell you. In a, it's so deep. And yet he liked Scoop Jackson, the Democratic senator from Washington. So as long as the environmental legislation was being cobbled together from Scoop's outfit, Nixon was willing to do bipartisan work on the environment as long as Muskie didn't get credit. And uh, Jackson never turned on Nixon on the Vietnam War, Cambodia, Laos. And Nixon deeply appreciated that, where Muskie became anti-Vietnam War, along with Gaylord Nelson, the, the father of Earth Day, the senator from Wisconsin, or George McGovern, senator of South Dakota, or Eugene McCarthy, senator of Minnesota. Nixon loathed them all, but he liked Scoop. And Ehrlichman liked Scoop. They both knew each other from Seattle. 
And um, these things start getting done on Nixon's watch. And But the big thing for Nixon, he's president just days and the Santa Barbara oil spill happens. How big was this it? This was an, a, just an atrocity in early 69. Dead birds on the beach, horrifying black soot, public outrage, media going on. And Nixon goes out there, visits the beach, and he behaves properly on well, how are we going to regulate offshore oil drilling. And then summer 69, the Cuyahoga River catches on fire in Ohio. It's on Time magazine. Um, and by the fall of 69, Earth Day is being plotted uh, by Walter Ruther, the head of the United Automobile Workers, a big environmentalist, and Gaylord Nelson, the senator from Wisconsin. And Nixon wants part of the action. And on January 1, 1970, Nixon signs NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which gives our country environmental impact statements for anything we want to build. It was a revolution, and Nixon deserves credit for it. Nixon gave the best State of the Union on the environment, bar none of anybody in American history, even up till now, in, on January, uh, in January of 1970. And then, of course, a couple months later was the first Earth Day. Nixon was suspicious it was a lefty idea, but nevertheless, with Pat Nixon, his wife, they plant a tree at the White House. He gives his employees at Interior Department time off to do environmental teaching events. And um, and then that summer of 70, under a lot of the media pushing for more on the environment, he, he creates the Environmental Protection Agency, which opened its doors in December 1970. And at the same time, Nixon also created NOAA uh, and put that in our Commerce Department. And so you're starting to build an environmental infrastructure that we're living with today under Nixon. I do have a clip of that uh, State of the Union address from January of, of 1970, and I'd like to play that so people can hear Richard Nixon on the environment. Restoring nature to its natural state is a cause beyond party and beyond factions. It has become a common cause of all the people of this country. It is a cause of particular concern to young Americans because they, more than we, will reap the grim consequences of our failure to act on programs which are needed now if we are to prevent disaster later. Clean air, clean water, open spaces, these should once again be the birthright of every American. If we act now, they can be. We still think of air as free, but clean air is not free. And neither is clean water. The price tag on pollution control is high. Through our years of past carelessness, we incurred a debt to nature, and now that debt is being called. Douglas Brinkley, in our waning minutes left, uh, I'd like to use one more clip, and that is to get the voice and, and image of Rachel Carson into our conversation here as a way of wrapping up this whole discussion. Here she is from the CBS special uh, of, about her work uh, in 1963. We have to remember the children born today are exposed to these chemicals from birth, perhaps even before birth. Now what is going to happen to them in adult life as a result of that exposure? We simply don't know because we never before had this kind of experience. 
Douglas Brinkley, that is one woman who was a government employee and the author of a book that you say changed the direction of environmental policy. So what is the message of the Silent Spring Revolution? Um, regulate, check, trust science. Don't introduce products um, of the modern world that are, are new, you know, that, that seem great in a laboratory if they've not really been vetted and released properly. But larger that we all have to be earth and water stewards. You know, Rachel Carson wasn't working in a bubble. We were do going to space and we were seeing pictures of lonely, fragile earth, the blue green marble, you know, floating out there. And there are no border lines you see from space. And there was an idea that we've got to take care of our planet, that everybody was talking about a moonshot, but what about an earth shot? And the opening salvo for the Earth shot was Earth Day 1970. And the, the, uh, everybody pitched in. We're talking today about Rachel Carson and the presidents, but, you know, Marvin Gaye with the song Mercy Me, The Ecology, or um, singers like Pete Singer, uh, Seeger, folk singer Pete, going on saving the Hudson River from ruin, stopping Con Edison from building an electric plant at the at the most beautiful spot of the Hudson and starting to save that great river. The banning of atomic, they were building a Pacific um, electric was building an atomic plant and a nuclear campus on the San Andreas fault line. And that got stopped by grassroots activists. And the point is by the time you're dealing with Nixon, the Endangered Species Act of 1973 passed the Senate 92 to nothing. That, and, and Nixon was a leader in it. Um, you know, the idea, Russell Train, who had worked and helped found the World Wildlife Fund and working with Nixon on it. Our country had pulled together on the idea that we've got to protect what we love so much. And we've got to think today always, in my mind, I know we have climate change, a whole other topic, and what is that? But why can't we swim in our lake? Why can't we swim in a river? Why do our fish have to be poisoned and we're worried about getting mercury poisoning or something else from eating them? These are the questions that Rachel Carson asked. And because DDT was killing the bald eagle, the symbol of America was thinning its eggs, eagles getting near extinct, osprey going extinct, the condor going extinct, alligators were disappearing. And, you know, I can name, the, I put in the book the list of all the species our country acted and we did something. So I'm grateful to that generation that we did get an environmental protection agency. We did get an Endangered Species Act. Nixon did sign a vigorous Clean Air Act in, in 1970 that's made a difference. We had a Clean Water Act in 1972. And, um, and so this Silent Spring generation that I'm writing about, it had a lot of people in it. But the three presidents were responsive to the public, and that's what great presidents do. So on this regard, I think uh, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon all were um, truly good, if not great, environmental presidents. In addition to your research and writing, you're still in the classroom. How do the stories of this era play with the young people that you're teaching today? Exceedingly well. Uh, for one time, we're in a moment now where, you know, we're, we're looking at women's history and with Rachel Carson and Lady Bird Johnson, I didn't have to I didn't have to pad their resumes. These were giants, not because they are women, but because they were giants of conservation. And nobody has written more beautiful books than the trilogy on the oceans that Rachel Carson has done. 
and nobody has campaigned for the beautification or or the the uh, green spaces and outdoor recreation lands more astutely than Lady Bird Johnson. I always thought Eleanor Roosevelt was in a league of her own as first lady, but you're looking at what Lady Bird did, and it, it's quite remarkable. So the, the these strong women's figure are encouraging women to be part of the environmental movement. I write about many different types of women, but also the environmental justice movement today is born in my pages. It's about Martin Luther King Jr. saying, why, what good does it do to integrate a lunch counter if the milk we're drinking is contaminated with radiation from a nuclear fallout in Nevada? He said that over and over again. And Coretta Scott King, you could put up a hundred pictures, we could have got an hour of her protesting nuclear testing. And the big thing that was accomplished with Kennedy, why he gets good marks, is Kennedy got it and he did it. He banned nuclear testing with Russia and Great Britain. And that's an epic achievement, the limited nuclear test ban treaty. So today, we're looking at a, a, a Putin's Russia. He's not allowed to do atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. China is refrained from it because we put in this sort of um, th this in play. And so there was an, a Kennedy say, did a great deal of, of ecological uh, ecological sanity when he fought. And that was his fight. Kennedy's greatest accomplishments, the limited nuclear test ban treaty. He saw it. It has a massive dimension about Earth stewardship and making sure people can have clean air, clean water, and not live with um, with foodstuffs being contaminated with tundra being poisoned with chemical fallout with meadows dying due to um, contaminants of the uh, modern industrial chemical compound uh, complex douglas brinkley joins us from new york as he begins his uh, publicity and conversations about his latest book and it's a big one silent spring revolution john f kennedy rachel carson Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Great Environmental Awakening. Thanks for giving C-SPAN another hour of your scholarship today. C-SPAN is part of my life, as you know, and thank you for launching me today with this. And I really appreciate it. It's the only forum where somebody like myself could get an hour on a publication day to talk about a book that I've been working on for, for really a decade. Well, we appreciate it, and our viewers will, too. Thanks again, Douglas Brinkley. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. <laughs>